open God's Word with you this morning. You can take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 25. Uh, we've been bouncing around a little bit in this series, and uh, I believe this is going to be a great way to conclude this series. So you're turning there, I have a question for you. When are you planning to retire? I know, I know. When I was a little bit younger, I used to ask this question a lot of people. And sometimes I would get these odd stares and the undercurrent when I asked the question was kind of like they would look at you and say, dude, I'm like 50 and uh, I've still got like 10 or 15 years of work left. Why are you asking me that question? Well, I'm a forward thinker. I'm just interested how people are planning their lives. But I came to realize that for many people, that question is like passing through the door. It's that first step of passing through the door with the sign of above, above it that says, old age straight ahead. Yeah, old age, right? Mm. Some of us cringe when we think about old age. In fact, I wonder, is it even like okay to ask or say that someone's old today? I don't know. We might be okay with talking about retirement, but old age is one of those things where we are entering into what is called liminal space. Now, liminal space is that place where you can't predict how things are going to go. It's new, it's exciting, it's strange, it's mysterious. One pastor talked about a liminal space when he was preparing for a marathon. You know in a marathon that typically you run a little over 26 miles. And as he was preparing, his training took him up to the 20th mile. So for him, his liminal space was that last six miles. How is this going to go? This is no man's land. I could get into that 21st mile and develop a cramp and just fail out of the race. Am I going to cross the finish line? I think what this pastor ended up doing is just leaning into the training. It would get him there. He did the race. He ended up completing it. Could it be that when it comes to the aging process that we too need to kind of trust in what's come before? Instead of dreading it, instead of saying, you know what, I'm not thinking about it until I just wake up one day and it's happened, I want to trust what Scripture has to say about it. And you know, Scripture, when it talks about aging, or if you have to think of it as the retirement years, treats it as a place in life, a season of life that has much elegance and dignity attached to it. Uh, when we think about this phase of life, I, of course, went to Abraham. Abraham in the Bible is presented to us as the model of faith. And I thought, well, who better to show us how to live this season of life than Abraham himself? So we're going to pick up in Genesis 25, and read verses 1 through 11 in the text. Let's read. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Now get this. She bore him Zimram, Jokshim, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Talk about a productive retirement phase of life. 
Uh, Jokshim fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abidah, Aldea. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Now, in this culture, in this day, that was actually very important that he would separate for the sake of peace within the family. So he does. We pick up in verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, uh, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. Uh, there, Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Bir Lahai Roy. So as we think about Abraham's retirement years, I want to suggest that you shouldn't think about retirement as a one-time event. In fact, it turns out that retirement is a series of events, not just when you conclude a career. Some of us don't conclude a career, but all of us will retire. So let's talk about certain ways that Abraham retires in this text, I want to suggest first that he is retiring from past shame and guilt. Okay, let's talk about Abraham's life for just a minute. Uh, on one end of the spectrum, Abraham in Scripture is presented as the model of faith. And on the other end of the spectrum, we know that this guy had some epic failures in his life. If you know his story, and if you don't know it, go read a little bit about it. You pick it up in Genesis chapter 11 and onwards. And here's what happens. Abraham is called by this God he doesn't know to leave from Ur of the Chaldeans, his homeland, and go to this place called the promised land. He does it. He trusts God. He goes hundreds of miles and begins the next half of his life at age 75 here. But... Almost immediately as he arrives in the promised land, he is met with a famine. What is going on in a famine? Well, food gets scarce. Abraham gets fearful. Instead of trusting God to preserve him and provide for him, he does what he knows is best. He flees the promised land. He goes to Egypt. A series of bad things start happening. It's like the snowball that starts the avalanche. For one thing... Abraham's wife, Sarah, was an Old Testament babe, okay? She was beautiful. He knew this. He goes into Egypt, and he's like, oh, if some of these Egyptian guys see how pretty Sarah is, and they know that I'm her husband, they're going to kill me. So he tells Sarah to pretend like she is his sister. And none other than Pharaoh himself looks out, sees Sarah, she is indeed beautiful, and he decides that he wants to expand the harem a little bit. 
What does Abraham do? He's a total coward. He doesn't tell Pharaoh anything. He wants to save his own bacon. He lets Sarah get taken into the harem. Now, what did God say in his promise? He said that Sarah would be the mother of the child of promise. How in the world is Sarah going to be the mother of the child of promise if she's in Pharaoh's harem? So God intervenes, and he removes Sarah from that situation. Now, have you ever done something really dumb twice? <laughs> yeah, you have. Abraham does the same he does the same thing all over again in a different setting. God intervenes once again. While he's in Egypt, he also picks up a servant girl by the name of Hagar. If you know anything about the story, God wants to demonstrate his power through Sarah by allowing her to conceive at a place and a time when there is no human conventional way that it could happen. And while she is going through the process of not being able to conceive, she comes up with a brilliant plan. I'm going to help God's plans along. I'm going to take our servant girl, Hagar, and she will become the surrogate mother of the child of promise. What's the result of all of that? Well, a lot of family drama. See, if you're reading scripture when you first start reading it from a performance mindset, the performance mindset says, God takes really squeaky clean people and he does really squeaky things through them. Uh, but that's not how scripture presents the heroes of faith, right? One thing that validates scripture actually is that God presents all of the flaws of the hero. And if you're reading Genesis, you're like, how in the world is Abraham presented as the model of faith? And he is. You look at like Romans chapter 2 and Galatians chapter 3 and James 2 and Hebrews 11. All of these chapters in the New Testament are like, that's the guy who showed us how to live by faith. But the Bible doesn't pull any punches. He had flaws, epic failures. And let me just say this, if your life was a biblical reality TV show, right? If there was a biblical narrator like exposing your inner thoughts and your inner attitudes and showing all the different behaviors and choices you made along the way, you might not look so good either. So the Bible says that God did something in and through Abraham. I've come to the belief that actually as we age, we become more aware of just how broken and sinful some of the choices we've made along the way are. You know, when you're younger, you do a thing and you think to yourself, this has a momentary impact. I did something, I move on to the next thing. You know, you live the YOLO life, I only live once, right? You only live once, that's how you live. But then when decades pass, now the regrets emerge. You look back over a decision you made 20 years ago and you think, how is it that I'm still dealing with the consequences of this thing today? Maybe you look back as a parent and you think, I wish I'd invested more spiritually in my children. 
Or you look at your marriage and say, you know, I just failed my spouse. I, I put my career before them. You think about things that you said to a family member that severed the relationship and we haven't talked for 15 years. You become more aware of your flaws. What do you do with that? A couple of choices. You can choose to just wallow in the guilt and shame. And that can happen. You look back, you regret, uh, you know now at this age of life that no matter how much you would want to, you are not capable of jumping in a time machine and transporting yourself back then and doing it over again. So you just feel bad. You feel shame, you feel guilt. And here's the truth about shame and guilt. Shame and guilt will rob your life of joy. They do not produce life. They take life away. If you look at the story of Judas Iscariot in the scripture, right? The betrayer of Jesus. Instead of taking his guilt and shame to Jesus, what does he do? He takes matters in his own hands and he commits suicide. That's what shame and guilt produce. They produce in us death. But the Bible presents a better way. It's called biblical grace. Uh, Tim Keller, uh, the late Tim Keller, described the gospel like this. He said, the gospel is the good news of gracious acceptance. I like that. And you can really think about this gracious acceptance in two ways. On one hand, in Jesus, God chooses to accept you. That is, if you believe in the gospel, if you believe that Jesus lived the life you couldn't live, died in your place, rose again from the dead, the Bible says that God graciously chooses to accept you. But here's another side of the coin. We must choose to accept that acceptance. You can reject acceptance. Or you can think that, well, they've accepted me, so I've got to do something to earn that acceptance. And the scriptures say, no, 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 that's not how it works. I was just reading through um, Hebrews chapter 13 in my devotionals, and, you know, it's a brilliant book of the Bible. The, the author of Hebrews is telling us through the book of Hebrews why Jesus is so much superior to the Old Testament system. And then he ends with this pastoral chapter in chapter 13 and describes just a bunch of wise decisions in faith that we can make. And he says this in verse 9. He says, Do not be led away by diverse strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Now listen to me. As you grow in faith, Sometimes you think that to achieve maturity in faith, you need new things, novel things, or you need to get stricter with God's rules for your life. That's going to make me more mature. But the Bible says, no. The only way to get more maturity is to embrace grace more in your life. I think about the late John Newton. If you know his story, you know that he was a slave trader and that he felt an immense level of guilt over what he participated in. He later gets his life reformed. He becomes a minister of the gospel. He writes perhaps the most well-known hymn in all of hymnody, Amazing Grace. 
And this is his summary of grace for his life. It's brilliant. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Do you think that maybe Abraham, as he was breathing his last breaths, was not resting in some kind of similar thought for his life? Everything that was happening at this moment was really just God's grace. Genesis 25 is framed by two genealogies, uh, one describing the descendants of Keturah and then the other of Ishmael. And probably as Abraham's passing, he's thinking about the promise that God had made to him. Remember, God said that he was going to have descendants look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. No matter how much Abraham tried to sabotage all of that, God's grace was still operative. He was still able to rest in it, even as he was passing into the next life. I want to talk about another form of retirement as we think about the end of life. Now, I want to read between the lines a little bit, if you will permit me to do so. I think we can do this in the Bible. I want to suggest that in this phase of life, probably some things were happening. Probably Abraham wasn't as physically strong as he used to be. I'll bet you with all the progeny running around, maybe he forgot some of the names of the grandkids, you know, his mind. What What do you do with the decline of old age? Do you get to a place where you just tell yourself, I'm useless because I can't do what I used to do? I used to be this superhero football star, and now I can barely do anything. Uh, Do you rage against it? Do you say, I'm just going to keep going with life until the wheels fall off? I was listening to a podcast just yesterday where they were bragging on this guy that was 78 and he only sleeps two hours a night and works, you know, 22. I thought, ugh, I think that guy's missing it. It seems that for Abraham, he didn't allow age to define him. If you look at verses 1 through 6, it seems that he continues to choose life and living and and going forward. He marries again, Keturah. And if you take a look at the the timeline of his life, it's likely that this was a 35 to 38-year period of his life. That's a lot of life to live. So what do you do when you can't do what you used to do. Alice Freiling creates a a powerful distinction. She says that there is a difference between productivity, what we tend to view as valuable, and fruitfulness, what God views as valuable. Productivity is what I accomplish. Fruitfulness, on the other hand, comes from within, and it's often expressed in non-tangible ways that I relate to others. Now, don't get me wrong. We all have a to-do list. It's good to feel productive. 
But somewhere along the way, my sense of identity gets wrapped up in what I can do. But as you age, guess what? Productivity declines. Fruitfulness, though, doesn't have to. Think back through your life. Who is a person, perhaps, who you look back and say, you know, there was a lot of fruitfulness in the way that they related to me? I think about my mammal wheeler. Now, incredibly competent, capable woman. My mammal wheeler was an Avon rep in West Virginia, and she was so capable in this business that one year she actually built a business where they did over $1 million of revenue. She was perhaps the top salesperson in the United States. I mean, incredible. But even while she was doing all of that, we lived at a distance at this time, I never felt like my grandmother was too busy for me. I, she was not always preoccupied with the next agenda, on the, agenda item on the list. In fact, when you were with Mamaw Wheeler, it was like all the focus and attention was on you. She was smiling and joyful, and she gave you hugs and told you jokes and laughed with you and gave you that grandparent $20 handshake. You know what I'm talking about? When I was in college, just starting college, um, I got to live with my grandparents in West Virginia and spend the last year and a half of life with Mama Wheeler. I noticed after about six months of living with them that she was just losing her capacity to remember things. Um, we were sitting down and watching our favorite show together, Texas, Walk Texas Ranger. What's that, Walker, Texas Ranger? We loved that show. I noticed somewhere along the way, though, that she stopped being able to follow the plot line. She'd just be like, what's happening? And in the second summer I was living with them, I went away to Slovakia for 10 weeks, and by the time I returned home, she had forgotten how to eat, how to bathe, how to dress herself. And within months, she went home to be with Jesus. In the midst of this dementia, I saw how fruitfulness can continue to just happen in a person's life, even when they don't have the faculties to produce anything, really. I was sitting at the lunch table one day. Now, when Mama forgot how to cook, my papa and I, we were in trouble. Papa had never cooked a meal in his life. So we'd go to Sam's Club, and there were like two items on the shopping list, meatballs and french fries. I promise you that's all we ate for like two years. So I'm sitting down at the lunch table with a big plate of french fries smothered in cheese and bacon and ranch, very healthy. And Mama is holding a letter, and she says, I don't know who this person is that's writing to me. She's saying I did all these things. I didn't do any of the things that she's saying to me. So she hands me the letter, and I start reading, and it's beautiful. There's this young woman maybe a little older at this point, but she's reviewing and reflecting on 
my mamma's influence over her life. She was a high school girl, and mamma would have her in the home, and there was always fresh cookies, and she'd have a group of girls there, and she just poured into their lives and opened her life up to them. And, and she said, I have daughters today, and I'm walking with Jesus today, and you may be the most significant influence in my life in my high school years. You know, the fruit of the productive spirit is tasks, goals, achievements, repeat. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Productivity is short-lived. Yeah, one CEO reflecting on the end of his career and his retirement said, in six months I went from who's who to who's he. Fruitfulness can perpetuate far beyond the present into the future. Uh, one pastor, Mark Dever, talks about discipleship, and he says, you know, every time I'm discipling and mentoring a young person, I am planting a grace time bomb into the future. Retire from productivity, rest in fruitfulness. And as we think about this, we have to come to terms with a reality. You see, Abraham experienced this, you'll experience this, I'll experience this. We'll all experience a form of loss in our life. Uh, John Stott, a very famous pastor at the age of 88, wrote a powerful book called The Radical Disciple. And he described this loss as the loss of independence. And he said this about God's plans for your life. He said, God's design for our life is that we should be dependent. Now, this is probably some of the most profound words you're going to hear this week. Listen in closely. He says, we are all designed to be a burden to others. You are designed to be a burden to me, and I am designed to be a burden to you. And the life of the family, including the life of the local church family, should be one of mutual burdensomeness. That's what Paul says in Galatians 6.2, right? Share your burdens with one another. But I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to rely on other people. I don't want to experience loss of freedom. I don't want to go through a phase of my life where perhaps I'm not able to drive the car myself anymore or go to the place that I want to go or be even bedridden where someone must feed me for me. Well, Stott says that that is not a mark of maturity, but a mark of immaturity. And it wasn't the way of Christ. Think about what God did in Christ. The second person of the Trinity became totally dependent, came to earth as an infant, had to be breastfed, had to have his bottom wiped, had to be propped up and rolled over. And God in Christ, also at the cross, was at the complete 
mercy of his enemies, his arms outstretched, nailed to the cross, immobilized, expiring his life for us. Stott goes on to say, in the person of Christ, we learn that dependence does not, cannot deprive a person of their dignity, of their supreme worth. And if dependence was appropriate for the God of the universe, it is certainly appropriate for us. And Stott lived out that lesson. In 2006, he was scheduled to preach at All Souls Church in London. As he's getting ready, preparing himself, he's doing a little last-minute laundry in the morning, folding up some clothes, and he trips over the protruding leg of a swivel chair, falls to the ground, breaks his hip, and all he can do is click this little transponder button around his neck. He's rushed to the hospital, undergoes surgery, hip replacement, and the next season of life is just spent bedridden in total dependence upon others. Let me ask you a question. What is God doing in us as we become more dependent? Well, it turns out the loss of dependence creates in us humiliation. Do you want to be humiliated? I don't. I don't want to experience anything humiliating. But the reality is, is when you're plumbing the depths of helplessness, you can't climb the mountain of self-confidence. And so in the space of humiliation, God forges the character quality of humility in us. You know, the Apostle Paul would say that all of his spiritual power as a missionary, and here we are talking about perhaps the greatest missionary of all time, came through humiliation. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, for example, he talks about to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Now, Paul had been given this spiritual experience and God didn't want that to become a stumbling block to his ministry, so he gets this thorn in the flesh. What was it? Well, we don't know. Maybe the people of this time understood it, but as you read between the lines, you get the sense that it was greatly debilitating to him. So he says, three different times, I begged the Lord to take it away. I don't want to be humiliated. He doesn't want to be humiliated. But each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That is why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. When I am weak, then I am strong. Well, here's a news flash. No one talks like this. You know, essentially, Paul is like, hey, everyone, I'm following Christ, and I'm getting sick, and I'm suffering, and I'm only deteriorating more along the way. Would you like to join my religion? <laughs> no, we want to project an image, and we spend great amounts of time and energy to avoid appearing weak. 
I mean, that's why there's a whole industry around like hair plugs and hearing aids and all of these kinds of things. We don't want to project weakness. And yet, John Stott and Paul and the scriptures, more importantly, are telling you that weakness and suffering and dependence and ignominy It's the space where God is fermenting your soul. He's doing something in you. Perhaps one of the things he's doing in this space is you used to think that you were doing things for him. And he's saying, no, 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 no. It's only ever been me doing things through you. We all crave deep relationships. I believe that you cannot have a deep relationship if you are not first a deep person. How do you become a deep person? Well, deep people have gone somewhere. They've been through something. I also believe that you can't achieve deep relationship by trying to project the perfect image of yourself. Guess what? No one cares about your facades. People want real, authentic relationship, and the pathway to authenticity is through vulnerability. I'm flawed. You're flawed. And when we choose to embrace the reality that, uh, guess what? I need to be a burden to you, and you need to be a burden to me, we receive a gift. You know what the gift is? Sacrificial love. And sacrificial love produces joy in the soul. So these retirements, shame and guilt, productivity, independence, these are all things that God's doing in you to deepen you, and he's deepening you for a reason. Remember that first question I asked you? I said, When are you planning on retiring? And I'm hoping at this point you've gotten over the offense of the question and now you can take it a little deeper. When are you planning on ultimately retiring? In other words, have you been thinking about the reality that you're going to die one day? Uh, We don't like to think about that here in the West. Nope, 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 nope. Uh, Eight out of ten Westerners They fear death. They're afraid of thinking about death. Uh, In the age demographic of 65 plus, uh, something like 50% of people in that bracket do not ever think about how they want to die. Uh, Even when we experience and brush up against death, the advice that we're given is, you should take your mind off of this. Occupy your time with other things. Don't go through the experience of actually understanding what this is telling you. And we do irrational things to try to push death off by a couple more days. I was reading a good book recommended to me um, by health journalist Michael Easter. And he was observing some of the irrational things people do today. He says, we take weird supplements, believe in possible things, undergo bizarre procedures to try to push death a few days downfield. In my career, I've written about men who in the name of living longer have illegally acquired dangerous pharmaceuticals from overseas labs, 
paid thousands to have the blood of younger men pumped into their bodies and spent millions funding teams of scientists who will, they believe, discover a fountain of youth in pill form. Now, does that, like, add to a better quality of life to rage against reality? Well, no. In fact, uh, the University of Kentucky ran a study where they had two groups considering an existential threat. So one of the groups was thinking about death. They were processing the reality of it. The funny thing was the second group was thinking about going to the dentist. That's funny. Now, what they found in this study was the deaf thinkers experienced greater levels of happiness and mental well-being as they thought about their life coming to an end. Why? I think you know the answer. When you start considering those things, you start considering how you're living right now, and it changes things for you. And of course, Scripture always tells us to not deny the reality of death, that mortality, this idea of mortality is a gift. When should you start considering this? Scripture says when you're young, go read Ecclesiastes chapter 12 this afternoon if you want more on that. Solomon says, remember your creator when you are young. And then he goes through this list of really bad things that are going to happen to you and why it's better to do it when you're young. You see, mortality is an important realization because it helps you to choose to live well right now in this moment. Abraham does this in Genesis 25. He's approaching death with dignity and elegance. He does several things. He establishes Isaac as the heir of promise. He gives gifts to his children. Verses 7 and 8 describe his death like this. Abraham lived for 175 years and he died at the ripe old age, at a ripe old age. Having lived a long and satisfying life, he breathed his last and joined his ancestors in death. What's remarkable is when you consider Abraham's life in total. We're told that he goes to the promised land at 75 and he wanders for 100 years. He never really sinks roots anywhere. He's just constantly on the move. Hebrews 11 explains what he's doing as he's doing this. It says that Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. And if you look at the other Old Testament saints, Hebrews 11:16 says they're doing the same thing. They were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Have you ever felt homesick even when you have a home? And they say when you leave your childhood house that you can never really go back home. Why? Well, because it gets different. It's not like it was. was. There's this kind of like ingrained wandering feeling inside all of us, and God has put it there because he wants you to crave and desire a better home. Jesus 
in John chapter 14, he talks about this home. You know, incredibly, Jesus was never afraid to contemplate his death. And he explains why he's doing this at various times throughout the Gospels. As he's talking to his disciples, he says this to them, believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, sometimes Jesus could just, his metaphors could be a little hard for the disciples to grasp. So Thomas, as he's listening to him, he's like, well, what do you mean by this, Jesus? How can we know the way to this home that you're preparing for us? And here's one of the clearest verses in all the scriptures about how much we need Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one can get home without me. You see, Jesus is the focal point for all of your longings. Relationship with God through Jesus is what you've always craved. I have to ask you a question. Have you ever committed your life to Jesus? Have you ever placed your faith in him? Have you ever decided fully and finally, he's my savior? I believe he died on the cross for my sins, in my place, and that because of that, I have the grace of God available to me. One of the greatest, uh, or one of my favorite stories in in John 2 is actually Jesus' first miracle. It's a wedding party in Cana. And in Cana, Jesus was asked to turn water into wine because the host had ran out of wine, and that was a big no-no in this culture. So Jesus does it, and the wedding coordinator tastes the wine that Jesus makes, and he makes this comment. He says, a host always serves the best wine first. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. (laughs) That's a little shrewd, isn't it? But he says, you have kept the best wine until now. Could it be that sometimes in life we actually think like the wedding coordinator and we think that Jesus is like that host that's holding back? Uh, You know, you brought out the best wine first. The best wine was when I was that super athlete. The best wine was when I was productive. The best wine was when I was totally independent. Let me tell you something about Jesus. Jesus doesn't withhold. He doesn't hold back. He wants to give you the best gifts. And here's the truth about your life. The first half of it is intended to build up so that you can have a great second half. And the way you have the second half is by walking with him, trusting him more, growing in his grace. Let me ask you to bow your heads with me. Lord, um, as we close out, reflecting upon just the beauty of this phase of life, the second half of life, uh, we all desire, I believe, 
to age like a fine wine. And we know that the way to do that is with Jesus, by trusting him to be our savior, by believing that he died for us, by living the life that Christ wants us to live. So I pray to this end, and I pray, Lord, that you bless everyone here. In Jesus' name we pray.